through 10. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. <clears throat> now just a, as a brief mention down here at the end, uh, verses 9 and 10 where it mentions bond slaves, there are several different kinds of servitude in the New Testament. Those who were slaves because they were captured in war. Those were slaves because they couldn't pay their bills and had to sell themselves into slavery. And then, of course, those who may have been slaves to start with in one of those two fashions or uh, decided because of love for someone that they would willingly become their slave. And that's this word here. Uh, in particular, that Paul so often uses, uh, if you look at the um, first verse of the first chapter, Paul introduces himself, he says, Paul, a bond servant of Christ. That is one who has willingly taken on the role of a servant. And in the first century, the way that you were identified with that is that you would go to the doorpost, the, the, the door of your uh, master's house, and you would put your ear up, your earlobe against the door, and he would take an awl, Okay, not a pin like at the piercing pagoda at the mall, but an awl. And if you have one in your toolbox, you know what an awl is. It's kind of a thick thing. And they, they would put it and they would drive it through their earlobe okay, as a sign that that person had willingly become a bond servant. Paul says, I am a bond servant of Christ. I am willing to become that. So as he is writing to Titus here, there was a category of people who were slaves in the New Testament times. It just was a fact of life in the world. And because they were under the, the yoke of the Romans still, uh, to try to speak up and to change that at that time would have been, would have been death. Okay, uh, Two-thirds of Rome was slaves. One-third of the city were free people. Two-thirds were the slaves. So you can see, if you want to read at a later time, just read the little book of Philemon there at the, uh, right after Titus about how Paul addresses the issue of slavery. He says, if your life has been changed, then maybe you ought to act differently relative to your expectations about slavery. Okay, That's just an aside. Now, back to what we're dealing with here. Verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, and then look down at the end of Verse 10, that they, adorn, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So we have an opening and a closing of this little section here with, an, with the importance of sound doctrine. Now we understand that the basis for all godliness and the basis for all holiness really is a person's relationship 
with Jesus Christ. You cannot be godly if you are not a believer. You might be a very nice person. You might be a very compassionate person. You might be a very caring person. And in fact, you might be a very compassionate and caring and nice person. You might even be nicer than believers. But if you are not, if you do not belong to Jesus Christ, then you cannot demonstrate godliness. You might demonstrate compassion, but you cannot demonstrate godliness and godly compassion. So it is belonging to Christ that is the starting point. So once you are a believer and the Holy Spirit lives within you, then you must work to understand what it means relative to this, how I am to live. Francis Schaeffer, a great Christian ethicist, wrote the book, How Then Shall We Live? If this is what Christ says, how shall we then live? This is the area that we deal with when it comes to doctrine. And for the second chapter there, the first verse, Paul is telling Titus it's important to deal with doctrine. Okay? Understanding the teachings of God's word so that you can live them. Understand what it says, live them out. So that they can pour forth from everything that you say, pour forth from everything that you do, so that your attitudes are right, so that everything that goes on in your life is based on the doctrine that is taught in Scripture, that you can live it out. Now, frankly, the non-believing world doesn't give a rip about our doctrine. They don't care whether we understand whether we are supra or infralapsarian. They don't care whether we're Sabellianists or not. Okay, That never passes their mind. The non-believing individual who is out there making a mess of his life only cares about the gospel if those who profess faith in Christ are willing to get down in the mud with them, so to speak, when they are at their lowest point and bring the healing message of the gospel to them. Okay? I've never been asked what my view of Pelagius was when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody who's in need. Okay? Now, in this room, we better figure out whether we are Pelagian or Augustinian? How many of you want to be Pelagian? How many of you want to be Augustinian? How many of you want to be Augustinian? Okay, okay, good, good. All right. See, the world doesn't care. The, the, they really don't care. We, you know, we can argue about doctrine, but they don't care. They want to hear the gospel. But in here, we better understand if we support Pelagius, who had a view of sin that says, I'm bad, but I'm not so bad that I can't save myself, or whether I believe the Augustinian view that says I'm totally depraved and God must come and save me. So how many of you are Augustinian? Good God, God that's all I like to see. Yeah? But, you know, when you go out and share the gospel with somebody, they're not going to ask you that question. They're going to want to know, do you care? They're going to want to know, are you willing to sacrifice some of your life so that they can hear the gospel, so that they can see it lived out, okay? But you won't understand their need for the gospel if your doctrine isn't right. They won't understand how desperately they they cannot save themselves. But you understand it because they're totally depraved. You understand that Christ has to come and bring his healing and saving grace upon their lives. They won't care about your preaching to them. They will care about your living it out. Okay? But Paul says, if your doctrine's not right, then your life won't be right. Okay? Doctrine alone, right doctrine alone, is not enough. Being kind is not enough. You have to mix the two. Your life will reflect your doctrine. 
Your life will reflect your doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 1 says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We teach so that you might live. We teach what is right so that you might live what is right. Not so you can sit in your easy boy chair and go, Man, I've got such a head full of good doctrine. If you're not out in the world living it, nobody cares about it. And it is wasted, frankly. So the first thing that we learn in this passage is that sound doctrine is for living and it ought to color our attitude, it ought to color our actions, it ought to color our worship, it ought to shape everything about our life. We're not simply coming here to learn more facts, we're coming here so that we are prepared from the Word to go and live the Word. So that's how Titus begins this little section here as he as he begins, or that's how Paul begins this section, Titus, so that he, in a sense, is helping Titus prepare the congregation that he's been given care over. Okay? If we want to make the illustration easy, you come here on a Sunday morning, I teach you hopefully the right understanding of the parable of the Good Samaritan. What do we do? We walk out the door and we live the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay? That's what we're talking about. So let me give you the immediate context of the passage that we're dealing with here. Paul, in his letter to Titus, especially in chapter 1, is concerned about promoting the, the sanctification of this congregation. He wants them to grow in grace. He wants them to grow in their understanding of what is right and how to live that out. He desires to see Christians in this place demonstrate the things of the gospel. Now, I mentioned before that Titus was working in Crete. Crete was not as bad as Corinth, but it was known as pretty much a cesspool. Okay, if you remember, the sailors were sad if they didn't get to stop at Corinth because Corinth was really known for its sinfulness and it's for its uh, temple of Aphrodite where you could go up and pay your money and worship with a temple prostitute. Well, Crete was pretty close to that and Titus has brought the gospel here to Crete and it has changed lives. Now they're trying to figure out how when we come out of this paganness, how do we live this gospel out now? How does it look in our lives? And when we get to chapter 2, Paul wants to promote that godliness and that holiness and that distinctive living within their homes, within their marriages, within their families, within their vocations about where they work. So he gives some very specific instructions about how Titus should structure his teaching relative to these areas. Okay? Now the first uh, ten verses are so full of good stuff, but being Mother's Day, we're only going to deal with the portion that deal with mothers. Ben, our day will come. Okay, In about a month, we'll come back to this same passage and deal with what is expected of men. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. And this is, you know, I've been around enough. This is dangerous territory. Okay? Older women. Now, how do you define an older woman? Well, if you're 20, an older woman's 21. Okay, we got that one, all right? Now, if you're 90, you might self-identify as an older woman, unless all your friends are 95, okay? And then you, you understand that, that this is somewhat relative. Within this culture, now, we, we know in Psalms it says your days might be 70 years or 80 years, and if we look at the first century, um, perhaps at the time of the crucifixion, Mary, if she was, let's say, put her at 15 maybe, when Jesus was born, 
30 years makes her 45-ish, okay? And we know she was there at the crucifixion. We know from uh, the first chapter of Acts that she was there in the beginning of the church. So uh, we have some idea that not, not everybody... Uh, you know, passed away young. Some people lived, and we have this admonition about the importance of gray hair and, and, and honoring that. So some people were older. Some people, um, you know, uh, all that to say is I'm not going to define what an older woman is. Okay, But I'm going to say an older woman is anybody older than you. And when we get to the men, I'll say the same thing. In the sense that anybody who has been a believer longer anybody who has had more experience with life and the application of the things of Scripture in their lives. Okay? If you're 25 and have three small children at home, an older woman to you in a certain application might be somebody who is 35 and who has been past that time and who's had three small children at home and has survived. Maybe the 35-year-old now is dealing with teenagers and wants to talk to a 45-year-old who has survived the teenage years. Okay? It's nice to talk to Fred Coffey about what it means to have three daughters at home. Okay? You know, and just to have some grasp of what goes on there. That is who we're looking at. So when it talks about older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. We'll look at that in just a moment. But an older woman is anybody who's been through it. Anybody who's been through what you're going through and you need that counsel. You need that godly example. You need to see how they applied the things of Scripture to their lives. Okay? To their lives. Now, just as a whole, Paul applies certain things to certain groups. Not everybody has the same responsibility. Some people have more responsibility. They cause more is expected of those who are older. More is expected of those who have applied Scripture and learned. Maybe you learned some very hard lessons. Okay? Maybe you're the type of person who has to go and bang their head against the wall quite a while before you figure out that that wall is very hard. Okay? Maybe you can learn from the wisdom of others. And that is a great gift if you can sit at the feet, in a sense, of somebody who has been through it and listen to them so that you don't have to beat your head against the wall or that you have the answers before you get there. Okay? How should I deal with a 14-year-old girl, daughter, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm figuring that one out. You got one more try at it, okay? Um, but if you know those things going in, it makes it that much easier. So Paul is saying, older women, you must be an example to those who are younger than you are, okay? So let's look at some of the things that they are to do and some of the things that they are not to do. First, they are to be reverent in their behavior. The older women are to be reverent in their behavior. That's one word in the Greek. Okay? To be reverent is one word. It means to be priest-like. They are to be like priests. Now, what does that mean? Well, they're to be holy. They're to be the kind of women who have access to God, who are in constant prayer, who are regularly on their knees interceding for others around them. They're the kind of women who can enter into God's holy presence at, at, at an instant. Okay? Now we have uh, such an example of that in Luke chapter 2 and we have Anna. Anna who was about 84 uh, uh, by the time that Jesus as an infant shows up there, had been a widow almost all of her life. 
adult life, but she had been in and around the temple serving and praying and worshiping the Lord all of that time. This is the context and the, and the, the, the idea that we get from this word to be reverent. Anna is the example of that. Now, that does not mean, ladies, that you need to abandon your family and come live here in the sanctuary. Okay? Uh, that's not going to do. But you are to have that type of attitude. Your mindset is to be such as Anna's was. So first of all, if you are to be reverent, priest-like, first thing you're supposed to be. First thing you're not supposed to be is you're not supposed to be a gossip. And, and literally the word is malicious gossip. Now it's quite a contrast between someone who is reverent and someone who is not a malicious gossip. It's fascinating. The word for malicious gossip is diabolos. What other word is diabolos? Devil? The devil. You understand, the word for a malicious gossip is the devil. Now just let that seep into your mind. Satan is good at one thing, which is what? Lying, deceiving. That's what he is good at. Okay. So when you are a malicious gossip, you are basically acting like Satan. And he says, uh, you know, Paul says, Titus, you have to teach him not to be this way. You know, men often will respond to uh, conflict um, um, uh, with with more physical things, with more anger that's demonstrated in a physical fashion. Women will often respond to conflict on a more verbal basis. You see that in little boys. You know, I, I know you think I, I talk a lot on Sundays, but I didn't speak a coherent word till I was almost four years old, okay? I'd go across the street, and I'd babble on with the neighbors, and they'd all shake their head and pat my head. But my mother said, you didn't have a, a sentence until you were at least four years old, okay? I think every one of my daughters were speaking sentences by one. I mean, they just were like, they could really talk, Okay. Women often will talk more about things, and that will lead them, if they're not careful, into malicious gossip. If you see boys, we go out, what? We fight, and then we're good friends again. The girls are chewing on one another. Okay? So he says, be very careful. They are not to be malicious gossips. Don't be critical. Don't go out and find fault. Don't nitpick. Don't slander. Paul says that that's the devil's work. That is the devil's work. So older women should not... Basically, don't vent your depravity through your speech. The things that come out of your mouth should be words of encouragement and blessing to strengthen those women who are younger than you are. Next one that they are not to be is they're not to be addicted to wine. Now, Paul brings this out to Titus apparently because this was an issue. Now, wine in the New Testament, it's wine. I'm not talking about grape juice. I'm I'm talking about a fermented drink. But often, in that culture, they would cut it so you could drink more of it, and the wine would, in a sense, purify the water, which may have been bad. And we get from this sense of what what Paul is writing here, that odds are the women weren't cutting it anymore. And they weren't cutting it with water. They were drinking it straight. And they were drinking it with full force. And perhaps in their older years, some of them were were lonely, some of them were maybe had physical ailments. Uh, there are all kinds of explanations for this, but whatever those explanations or reasons are, they were becoming addicted to wine. And the reason not to be addicted to wine is so that your person 
and all that you are and say might be reserved for holiness. Okay, that it might be reserved for holiness, so that your mind is not clouded. It is not taken up with the things of this world, and, and, and that it is reserved for God's holy purposes. Your tongues are to speak words of edification and blessing, and your body and all that you are are to be reserved for God's purposes. Okay. So, the last one that I have is another to-do. They are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. Not just by their example, but also from the words of their mouths. Now, we are not talking about having seminars and not talking about having classes. That's not the application here, although uh, we have a good friend in Wilmington who runs a mentoring program. Her children are all grown. She has grandchildren. And in her church, she runs a mentoring program where she basically leads the group of older women who teach younger mothers how to be mothers. So many of them grew up in dysfunctional homes. They don't, just the basic things. You know, they don't know how to cook. They don't know how to discipline their children. They don't know how to balance life. If some of them have to work, and then some of them, then, then they come home. How do you work those things out? So she runs a mentoring program out of her church to teach the younger women these things. Okay? But the challenge here is so that the older women live lives of godliness because they are being watched. Because there are people around you who won't come up to you and ask you questions, but they will watch your life. There you are. You've been at Central for 50 years. You've been a believer, and and you're respected, and you're godly. Now I'm going to sit back, and I'm going to watch you. I'm going to watch how you interact in these instances. I'm going to watch how you treat those who don't speak kind words to you. I'm going to watch how your attitude is and how you live these things out. Okay. So you are to teach what is good, not just with your mouth, but with your very life. You are to demonstrate the things of holiness, the things of godliness. And basically, you don't need an advanced degree to teach others how to love their husbands, how to love their families, how to live out the things of Christ. You need to fill your mind with the word and then to live the word. Then to live the word. So go home. Paul is saying to Titus, teach them to go home, love their husbands, love their kids, submit to their husbands, build up their families, take care of them. Okay? Now, when you apply this in our world, it gets a little bit more complex. Okay? So many mothers today work. Some have to work. Some work because they want to. But remember, as you live this example of godliness before the younger women, anybody who's younger than you, The issue is how to balance these things. How to make sure that your family is first in this complex world. You may have to do these other things, but God has given you responsibility over this area in particular. So how will you demonstrate godliness to your husband? How will you demonstrate godliness to your children? How will you demonstrate the things of mercy and compassion to them? Yes, there are other responsibilities. But this is primary and first. This is what Paul's saying. There's no, there's no caveats here. There's no uh, opportunity to, to understand it in a different way. It's just the command. Show grace in these areas to these people. So mothers, where will you devote your time? Where will you devote your time? Look at verse 4. 
it begins in our pew Bible. It was a good word to start. It says that. That. Which makes it a purposeful clause. In order that. Or the result that. Why do you live this way, ladies? In order that those who are younger than you might grow in godliness. So that those who are younger than you, who need to be encouraged, who need to see the example of Christ lived out, will live it out, will know where to look. Whoever is younger than you, you need to encourage. Your behavior needs to be an example to them. Okay, That's just what Scripture says. Go down to verse 10, and we'll see the reason for all of this. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. It's for the sake of exalting the things of God's word. For the sake of silencing the critics. It's for the sake of demonstrating the saving power power of God. This is how we are to live. This is the reason we are to live in this fashion. These are not optional. These are not negotiable. Plain and simple. All of our responses to God's word and all of our Christian living ought to have this view in mind. That the things of Jesus Christ would be exalted that our lives would be clear evidence of the right doctrine that has been taught and placed in our hearts. So either our lives will make others be drawn to the word and be drawn to the Lord, or they will be repelled because they'll look at us as hypocrites. Okay? Well, of course we're hypocrites. Okay? You know my saying. When somebody says, I don't go to church, it's full of hypocrites. And I said, no, it's not full. There's, only, there's always room for one more. Okay? <laughs> There's, we're a bunch of imperfect people and we're called to live in this fashion and it's not our own efforts, remember that. It's that when the Spirit comes upon us, something fabulous happens. Yes, we are to pattern our lives after this fashion. This is how we are to demonstrate the things of Christ and let the Lord work through us. Let the Lord work through us. Now, we have had such great examples here at Central over the years. Great examples of godliness and holiness. Those who have gone before us, as, as I prayed earlier, some are in heaven. Some are you know, rejoicing with the saints and others are still here with us. Okay? Whether you're 20 and you're looking at somebody who is 30. Or whether you're 30 and you're looking at somebody who's 40. Or whether it's on and on and on. There are great examples of godly Christian women in this congregation. And the Lord has blessed us with, with such maturity, with such compassion. So I just remind you that this is how we are called to live so that the gospel might be proclaimed. Men, I'm glad you were here. I hope you'll come back in June. And we can be challenged in the same way from God's word. So let's pray. Lord, what a great blessing you have given us to be surrounded by godly women. Now we know that there are those who have not lived a perfect example in front of us. We, we ourselves have not lived the perfect example. But today, Lord, in particular, we give you thanks for those who have been mentors in our lives, those who have caused us by their behavior, by the words from their mouths and the attitudes of their hearts, that they were godly, that they sought after the things of Christ, that they have caused us to seek in the same fashion that they have brought honor to the things of your word. That they have lived lives that have been gentle and uncompromising. 
Sometimes they have been direct and said, this is the way it is because God's word says this is it. Lord, you have put examples in our lives. Keep our eyes looking forward at our mentors. Keep our eyes looking forward at those who are going through the things that we're going to go through in our lives. How are they living them out? How are they applying the things of God's word? But also, Lord, keep our eyes focused on those who are coming behind us because we know that their eyes will be looking at how we live it out, how we apply the things of God's word. Lord, our only desire in all of this is that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, that you alone would receive the praise and the honor and the glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.